Hey everyone, welcome to a brand new year on uh, Get Call. And I just realized I was looking at my show and I guess we've been doing this about a year now. So that's kind of crazy. Episode 79, uh, we're going to wrap up the worst of our media in 2022 and the worst actors. And a lot of this probably won't come as uh, much surprise to you, but I'm going to throw out a few things that I caught. And then hopefully some of you will jump in the queue, which it looks like a few of you have. And uh, you can throw out yours. And it doesn't have to be from any political party or ideology. It can be from the left or the right. I'm willing to hear it all. Um, Happy New Year. Sorry I kind of fucked this off a couple of times. I said on the podcast today that I know I was supposed to do this Saturday, and I'm just going to be flat honest that I just blew it off. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Sorry. The monkey doesn't always dance the way you want him to. Uh, jumping kind of in. Going kind of chronologically, we saw kind of a, a huge change at CNN, and we saw Brian Stelter hit the unemployment line. And I know that that's kind of a cliche, but you're talking about someone who was genuinely one of the worst shameless promoters of media that we have in mainstream. And I don't think a lot of the things that I'm going to bring up are necessarily mainstream, but just someone who um, – promoted certain things about media, media matters, et cetera, et cetera. And then when called on, it just acts like the innocent victim. And there's far too much of that. And so it was good regardless to see him out of a job, despite someone might take his place and be worse. Um, there was a big year for two, two things. Fact-checking kind of went the way of the dodo. As we saw with the Washington Post said, we're going to stop the Biden lie tracker but also, I think what was funny, and it doesn't get enough attention, is how AP and Reuters, international news organizations, have been fact-checking memes and jokes, especially as it pertains to social media and Twitter. And it's one of those cases where everyone is in on it except you. And those are two organizations who never have to answer for their kind of hilarious antics when they do this. Um, we saw them... Uh, fact check a video that somebody made of an ice cream truck driving behind Joe Biden. And then he kind of wanders off in the direction of the ice cream truck. And this was a two to 300 word fact check, I believe from AP. Um, so there's, you have shenanigans there. The other big thing that we saw this year, and this kind of ties into also Twitter was the, the year of disinformation reporters. And that also includes uh, Nina Jankowicz and the disinformation board for the Biden administration. And you saw what, you know, we're told is uh, there are four lights no matter what from these people. And, of course, they're coming from an ideological point of view. Uh, Nina Jankowicz is not interested in not promoting disinformation. We know because of how she promoted uh, the Hunter Biden laptop stories, Russia disinformation itself. And we saw, again, the rise of uh, the profile rise of such disinformation reporters, such as, say, Ben Collins from NBC, Brandy Zadrozny from NBC, and in particular, someone that they use as a source uh, whose name is Alejandra Carballo, very kind of well-known on Twitter under the handle at Esquire, who uh, promotes themselves, uh, herself, himself, they self as a Harvard adjunct professor researcher in online safety and safetyism. And of course, uh, Hanja Carbayo is one of these people who had an oversized role, it appears, in influencing the old heads of Twitter, including Vijaya Gad and Yul Roth. And Carbayo is interesting in, in, in and of they self, 
because just within the last three weeks to a month, Carbio has been single-handedly responsible for spreading three major online hoaxes. Starting this past weekend with the fact that Andrew Tate was detained by Romanian authorities based on pizza box locations. This one extremely viral was picked up by several mainstream outlets and it turned out to be completely false. And Ben Dreyfus at Substack has a great post debunking all of this. The other one was the uh, pushing the idea that the Club Q shooter uh, was not non-binary, but Caballo was mentioned in several pieces for NBC in particular, where she's a favorite source of reporters like Collins, saying that the uh, Club Q shooter using non-binary pronouns is not acceptable because why would you attack your own community? Well, ask a post office worker, okay? Um, and of course, they run with this instead of actually looking into these kinds of claims. Uh, as of now, the, the shooter at Club Q in Colorado Springs at the LGBT club uh, states that they are going by non-binary pronouns. And there's this game afoot where we're only supposed to accept pronouns uh, when they say it's okay, which is basically Calvin Ball. The other one is uh, attacks on the North Carolina uh, power station uh, stating that it was targeting drag shows. And they, basically there were several attacks on power grids, on power stations, on transformers meant to uh, scare off drag queen shows. And these were all kind of coincidences that there's been no proof that has led to any of that. And so you have someone who has been inundated with a great deal amount of power, and especially power in academia, who is a crutch and a resource for several media outlets who continuously is making things up. And so I conclude someone like Carbio into the disinformation ecosystem that, again, was a big year for the worst media actors. Carbio, of course, has been pretty much uh, how shall we say neutered, pardon the pun, uh, because that leads me to my other worst actors of the year in media, which was that former heads of Twitter, including Yoel Roth and Vijaya Gad, which we've seen exposed in Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss's, Michael Schellenberger's Twitter files, um, and how the heads of Twitter basically took, uh, took it upon themselves to start ideologically banning accounts over uh, especially on the case of misgendering the ba Babylon Bee, for example, uh, making jokes and stating that satire was still part of the misgendering policy. And of course, we saw it with the decision to ban Donald Trump, uh, amongst others. And that also now includes COVID, supposed COVID misinformation. And so I would also throw Yol Roth, who I think is start, you know, comes off sort of as someone who is at least considering Twitter's policies before they made these decisions while ultimately caving to the demands of a mob, uh, Vijaya Gad, I do not uh, offer such kind of grace to. Um, lastly, um, as far as some of the worst actors in Twitter, or I'm sorry, in media this year, I would throw in the SBF uh, connections with FTX and the amount of money several media outlets took from SBF that have not become transparent or uh, acted transparent in exactly how those funds were dispersed, where they went, what were they were used for, et cetera. Uh, we saw several news outlets, ProPublica, Vox, Semaphore Media, and a few others, The Guardian and The Intercept all take money basically from Sam Bankman-Fried's uh, global altruistic um, action fund. And we know that this wasn't just going to support journalism. This was all, you know, buying and paying for reporters that would then turn around and report things about climate or pandemic or eating bugs or living in pods or whatever that they wanted to report. And so 
these are kind of the big ones of the year uh, that I'm rattling off. Um, there's, of course, I think even recently, <laughs> going back to last night, if you want me to play devil's advocate, um, I think some of the behavior we saw last night with Damar Hamlin and uh, vaccine insinuation from characters on the right, such as Charlie Kirk and others, was absolutely despicable. And especially in a time when this was not somebody who just fell over dead last night. This was someone who suffered a severe blunt force trauma to the chest. And so I'm pretty much made my feelings about that well known today on my podcast. So this was just kind of wrapping up 2022 is kind of, I know it already feels like we're in March. <laughs> the, uh, the Republican House caucus has made us feel that way. To anyone paying attention, I'm not really, I could, don't really care. Um, but feel free to jump in and give me some of your worst media actors of 2022. Uh, that can be certain, I'm, I don't mind naming names, just don't make it personal. Um, certain stories ha have you, as well as uh, anything that I might have missed. Uh, we'll go for probably about an hour tonight. It's still the beginning of the year. We're all still recovering from the holiday. Um, as usual, if, uh, if you're in the queue, just be mindful of people behind you and, uh, just kind of make your points. And I know it's conversational, so it doesn't always go that way. And, uh, also, uh, just please mute your microphone when you're not speaking. It mainly, it's mainly for me, uh, as background noise tends to distract me and give, you know, my urge to kill rising. Uh, but also it just makes it easier for the audience in a published recording. So welcome to the first episode of the year. Let's keep this going all year long. Uh, long time listener, first time. Several of you should probably know Damon is probably the most memed whomever he is from Twitter, which is kind of weird is how I fell onto him. But uh, Damon, you're up. Welcome and finally glad to get you in the queue. Yes, thank you for having me. Happy New Year, Stephen. Hi, everyone. Uh, my uh, idea for the topic that came to mind, it feels like forever ago, but it was from June which was uh, Felicia Sanmez uh, from the Washington Post. That's a Post, good one, yep. Uh, and calling out Dave Weigel. Dave Weigel retweeted, didn't even tweet himself, retweeted someone's joke uh, that uh, every girl is bi. You just have to figure out if it's uh, polar or sexual. Uh, and she was uh, aghast and could not believe that he would be allowed to work at the Washington Post while uh, tweeting that or retweeting it which then led to days of fighting with everybody until she was fired. Uh, Who she's still fighting with. She still has a lawsuit with the Washington Post, and, the, and she has tried to get her union to kind of back her to get her back into a job. And I'm going to be honest, it would not surprise me if for some reason she was walking back into that place or somehow finds another one. That's, that's a good example. That's one where... Um, if you do kind of what I do with uh, just media observation, media criticism, uh, it had it had all the all the sparkles and and flies of a of a great thing. You had Dave Weigel kind of in the middle of it, who for once didn't really do anything wrong. Um, obviously, you just it felt so personal for some reason, like it was this harmless thing, and then you had a reporter just feel like blowing up the entire workplace over uh, a, a retweet. Uh, and then, of course, like you said, um, she became kind of like the uh, the Thunder three-time Japanese guy in Big Trouble in Little China who was blowing air out of his nose saying, I don't think he, she's going to stop going on for days and days and days. 
Um, yeah, that's a good one. That's one that we talked about. And of course, Somnes has had kind of a history with that stuff. She was dogpiled when Kobe Bryant uh, was killed in the helicopter crash at the beginning of last year. And she noted the rape accusation. Uh, and that one kind of, uh, she be kind, of, kind of became the center of attention on that. Damon, when, somebody, when, you, when you see a celebrity die, how do you feel about that? How do you feel like, let's, let's say that it's, it's borderline and it's not, let's say it is like a Kobe Bryant thing. Do you think like in an obit or something, something like that kind of accusation should be included? Or is there like a, we can't talk about this thing right now? Uh, in the context of an obit, I mean, if something to just use Kobe Bryant as the example that you gave, I mean, that was a major legitimate news story that went on for a very long time. So I, I would think it would be, I think it would behoove, uh, you know, if there was a large obituary with an overview of his career, that would have to be mentioned to some extent, I would think. Yeah, the, I never really got the huge outrage on that um, with Somnus. I didn't think she was totally off, but um, it it was funny because it was kind of like Kobe Bryant was such a beloved sports figure who kind of put that behind him by buying his wife a very large rock and admitting that he was only cheating. Um, that it kind of became a, how dare you kind of do this thing? I think that that also, that kind of rep carried over for Somnes over the Washington Post. But it really, it really was kind of a pullback because she was just kind of just going after everybody. She's going after Busby. She's going after um, any, like every editor at the Washington Post. Uh, they were told, you know, you need to kind of stop doing this. And she's like, no, I'm not going to be silent. But the thing that I, I mean, the thing that caught my attention, at least, is that it felt very personal, like some they were even talking like a, a female journalist could not tweet this out and get away with it. And I, when you're talking about the year of Taylor Lorenz, you kind of go, are you kidding? You guys can get away with just about literally anything. And so and of course, it's probably safe to say when Weigel was suspended. Um, that's right around the time that Ben Smith most likely picked up the phone and said, hey, how'd you like to come over to Semaphore? Which is interesting because Semaphore Media and Ben Smith have faced criticism from that kind of former cool kids table, uh, not only for the we for the Dave Weigel thing, but um, Lorenz herself had a go at Ben Smith over Ben Smith having me on his BuzzFeed podcast years and years ago. And I even joked with Ben, I said, I told you that this would come back to, you know, to bite you. And uh, so I thought that that was kind of humorous as well. That's a good one. I, that's one where like, I, I, I completely forgot about it, <laughs> but it's as soon as you mention it, all of those fun details come flooding back. And now I'm swimming in it. I'm very glad to be of service. I would hope that you're permanently in a dark nightmare. And with that, I will say thank you and happy near to everyone. And I will let the callers move along. Thanks Damon. And of course, of course I'm in a dark nightmare. How, why do you think I, And what we've already heard, or give me one that we haven't mentioned yet. What's your worst media? It can be media, it can be person, it can be whatever of 2020. Right, I've got a couple. And I'm, again, man, just narrowing it down to just one or two, because it's, it's just like a dead heat. It's like a 10-way a, a tie for first place. There were so many examples last year, um, many of which uh, I was introduced through. You and your podcast. And uh, but but the two I'll mention, uh, they they really kind of uh, stuck in my craw because they're they're examples of journalists just refuting the obvious, just brazenly, shamelessly 
publicly gaslighting, just denying the obvious. First example, Stelter at that uh, God, what was that summit on ironically titled the like, Atlantic, yep, like the, fairness the Atlantic and, summit on disinformation? Speaking of right, unbelievable. Where exactly. Gold, Goldberg right. and Stelter were basically owned by college students. And right. it was it was interesting. Um, let me let me look this one up because Stelter did something kind of egregious. And I need I just want to be oh, sure your, your reaction, Stephen, when after he you played his tape. You played the tape of him, and then after it was over, you stopped it. Do you remember what so, he said? So here, here's what it was. is uh, A student got up and asked Stelter about CNN's coverage of the Steele dossier. Uh, he basically got up and said, how can you be speaking at a summit of disinformation after CNN's coverage of the Steele dossier? Uh, Juicy Smollett, uh, regular sources, uh, reliable sources, guess Michael Avenatti's gang rape accusations against Kavanaugh, Nicholas Sandman, and Brian Stelter's response to the student was, well, you know, we always come together. Like, what about the, the dead Fox News cameraman? I think in Af- was that Afghanistan where he died or something? Um, and that was his response. It was, you know, we don't always get things right, but we don't always hate each other. You know, CNN stopped programming when Fox News's cameraman died or it might have been Ukraine or somewhere. And that was his re- that was his answer to can you explain how you got the Steele dossier wrong? Can you explain your, your people on set immediately siding with Juicy Smollett? Can you talk about promoting Michael Avenatti and with his unsubstantiated allegations? And can you talk about CNN's coverage of Nicholas Sim? And of course, CNN's not going to talk about Nicholas Sim because they were in a lawsuit with him. But yeah, that, the, the whole idea that The Atlantic is having a conference on disinformation where they have Jeff Goldberg and they have a few others. Remember, Jeffrey Goldberg, during the campaign, promoted the Trump suckers and losers comment while visiting Normandy. And this was an unsubstantiated anonymous uh, accusation. Now, does it sound like Trump? Eh, yeah. Does it sound like something Trump might have said? Yeah, maybe. But when you're in the act of journalism, eh, and maybe isn't good enough. And uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, I believe, went on Brian Seltzer's show and said, we have more of this reporting coming out that's going to verify. After, I think the Trump administration rolled out like 31 people on that trip and said, the situation you're describing didn't exist. It never happened. So therefore, how could the comments have happened? And Goldberg said, we're going to have more reporting on this that will refute that. And they never did. Like, it just disappeared. It just was like, nope, no follow-up, no follow-up stories, no tweets, and everyone just kind of moved memory, on from Memory it. hold. The Stelter thing was worse than you're describing because it was – before they got to the thing about, oh, we all rallied around the death of that one correspondent, before he said that, I will not forget this. He said something about – and I'm paraphrasing, but this is the substance of what he said. He said, hey, how can you say we're biased when just this week I got into a, uh, an argument – with a spokesman from the White House. And I'm thinking, how in the fuck does that refute the assertion that there's bias in the media? But he did. Do you remember, David, do you remember the context of that? Remind me. Remind it was, me. It was him asking Jen Psaki, how can we do a better job of covering the White House? <laughs> okay. I, 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 don't, I do not remember that question, but I do remember that reply as if that's, uh, that is conclusive of anything. The fact that he got into an argument with a spokesman from the White House proves in Stelter's, I mean, Stelter knows it's a fucking lie, but he was trying to sort of 
pass that off as palm that off as proof that no, we're completely objective. The other example, and you, I think, played uh, uh, Douglas Murray's uh, one of Douglas Murray's speeches from or uh, extended remarks from this, the Monk yep. debate, and which is I recommend to everybody uh, that they listen to it that with Douglas Murray, Matt Taibbi, Malcolm Gladwell, and Michelle Goldberg. And my God, I just think it, it was just so illustrative of of what you're talking about. But in that, Michelle Goldberg used as evidence and put that word in quotes that the media is not biased by uh, her own coverage of the Canadian Freedom Convoy. Do you remember that? And she basically said, hey, we the New York Times printed a fair minded story about the truckers on this one particular day. Therefore, QED. The New York Times is a fair-minded publication. Do you remember her saying that, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, she basically said, hey, we wrote, you know, an op-ed kind of citing what the truckers want or whatever. But you're also talking about a paper that published the Taliban saying, hey, the Taliban wants this. And China said, boo-hoo, we have Hong Kong. And you also published Vladimir Putin on an anniversary of 9-11. Right. I mean, it's – it's so anyway, the, 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 the kind of the, – the disingenuous nature of her – replies and especially Gladwell. Gladwell was really egregious in that. I mean, he just, you know, he kept basically calling Matahibi a racist because Matahibi was complimenting Walter Cronkite. I mean, do you remember? It was just, you know, the, 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 the verbal contortions that they were going through, that Gladwell was going through to paint Tahibi as a, basically a white supremacist. And finally, Tahibi called him on it. Um, that debate, I really recommend to everyone as just exhibit a of of exactly what you what you're describing here so anyway those are my examples i can't wait to hear uh those from your other callers and uh nothing from david french this time david (laughs) i uh, you've you've done you've covered that fairly thoroughly and Uh again i my heart breaks i mean i i i remain a fan of his intellect french's intellect I, I, I do wish he, you know, wasn't going woke as, as quickly as, and obviously as he is, but. Will, will you be subscribing to the New York Times? <laughs> you should live so long. Um, anyway, uh, great work and great talking to you and um, have a, have a, I, I think this is the beginning of a, what I think is going to be a great year. We'll for see. You. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Dave. Last bird, let it rip. Give me your own, or if you want to feel free to elaborate on any of the ones that we've covered. Uh, I know I probably just pulled a pin, a pretty big pin on a pretty big grenade, but uh, go ahead. It's going to be a short episode if he doesn't hit the unpause button. All right. Last bird, if you can hear me, jump back into the queue. Go ahead, Sam. You're up, Samuel. There he is. Okay. Um, so I have a couple ones that I just, I was kind of scrolling through some of my like screenshots and stuff. Um, so just a couple off the top of my head, like no particular bad actors necessarily. Just, I just remember news cycles where I just wanted to die. Um, the one screenshot that I pulled um, that I found was when the Brett Kavanaugh attempted assassination thing was going on. And the media just didn't cover it where like uh, this screenshot was like the day after 
the attempted, you know, we got all the news and everything. It didn't make the front page of the New York Times. I just remember how there was like almost a complete media blackout after like the initial story broke, like that the morning or the night, whenever it happened, like the next day it was completely wiped from the news and they just refused to cover it again. That was one that just made my blood boil because, you know, just if you, you know, everyone hates playing the what if game, but if it was Sotomayor or anybody on the left, you just know how they would have reacted. So here's how the New York Times frame this, and it's very, very subtle. See if you can figure it out. It says, Iron Man traveled to Justice Kavanaugh's home to kill him, officials say. <laughs> um, now, remember, you're never supposed to frame it or when they're talking about somebody shot by police like an African-American. It's never the officials say. You're always supposed to doubt what they do. Uh, this was kind of the reverse. It says the man, Nicholas John Roski, 26, said he was upset about the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, the impending decisions on abortion and guns, and a federal affidavit says. So they're framing it as the shooting in Texas is what drove him to do this. The lack of gun control or school security in Uvalde, Texas, is what drove him to do this, as was the impending decision on abortion. And so it's very subtle the way they frame this. Another one was ABC News. Um Again, and I don't necessarily see anything wrong with officials say, but again, it's how they frame things differently. ABC News says, California man indicted for allegedly attempting to assassinate Brett Kavanaugh at his home. Nicholas Roski was detained, quote, without incident outside Kavanaugh's residence. Now, that's a proper and correct headline, but we know that the allegedly is doing a lot of work politically that is not always done on the other side of the aisle when it comes to, say, maybe the targeting of right wing violence. And so, um, yeah, it was something that did not catch on. I think it was one day of questions for Jen Psaki about, hey, what about this? And the, and the White House basically said, we encourage people to protest peacefully. It was not a condemnation that this had happened. It was a shift to, we still want protesters to continue doing this. Well, and remember, Pelosi never condemned it. In fact, when she was asked about it, she went on a rant about how amazing abortion was. And that they continue to, like, uh, shoot down a bill to, like, provide additional security to Supreme Court justices. And, again, the media didn't cover that at all. They just were completely disinterested. Um, One of them that's just obvious that I don't feel like I need to explain was the whole thing about don't say gay down in Florida. And just, like, the media's just the don't say gay moniker where every time they mentioned it, they said don't say gay. Um, you know, you'd get into Twitter arguments where they're like, I don't know why you wouldn't call this. It's like, well, it's not the name of the fucking bill to begin with. Well, and they they would, would, so they would always frame it in false. quotes with, with critics, what critics say. So whenever they were describing the Parents Protection Act in Florida, they were always framing it in quotes saying, or what critics call the don't say gay bill. And if you recall, I had a back and forth with a, I believe, a Florida Sentinel reporter who's a pretty well-known guy down there who, that's what he called it. And I said, that's not the name of the bill. And he said, hey, it's good marketing. You know, you know, that's just what they did. They labeled it and it stuck. So you had a journalist for the Florida Sun Sentinel basically saying, hey, we're, we're running with this because it's catchy, regardless of the truth. And so whenever you saw how that was, again, kind of going into what you're saying is whenever you saw how that was framed, they always use the don't say gay thing, but they always put it in the headlines and they use quotes saying, or what critics call it. So saying what critics have labeled this 
dishonestly is is how we're going to run. And that even spilled into polling of the bill. When they were polling the popularity of the bill, they were calling it the don't say gay bill in the polling of the bill. Like that goes like kind of an extra layer into the polling industry. But they were literally incorporating the media narrative into the public polling to try to drive the polling support of it down. Didn't work, thank God. But like they were, you know, really harping on that. And that was very irritating. Like it was like, uh, I don't remember. It's like a seven page bill. Like I read it, you know. And we could debate the bill, but like it definitely did not say don't say gay. Like that was just so. And so here's here's a quick rundown of news outlets and how they frame this. So NPR, Ron DeSantis signs the so-called, quote, don't say gay bill. PBS, quote, don't say gay law brings worry, confusion to Florida schools. Um, Georgetown EDU, the dangerous consequences of Florida's, quote, don't say gay bill. Um, NBC News, what Florida's quote, don't say gay bill actually says. NBC News, as Florida's don't say gay law takes effect, schools roll out. Washington Post, what is Florida's quote, don't say gay bill. Uh, Florida's don't say gay bill law takes effect. Washington Post. Uh, Let me keep going here. (laughs) There's a lot of them. Here's AP News, don't say gay bill signed by Florida. The Guardian, which of course is biased. uh, Let's skip that. Uh, Florida teachers confused by so-called don't say gay law. Uh, I wonder how they got so confused, by the way, as I'm reading down some of these. So uh, here's Politico. Florida's fight over the don't say gay is getting more uh, contentious. BuzzFeed News. Florida classrooms are changing after, quote, don't say gay bill. Uh, Let's see. That's Canada. Fuck Canada. Um, (laughs) So, yes, here's New York Times. Here's exactly what I'm talking about. New York Times. DeSantis signs Florida bill that opponents call don't say gay. Here's CNN. What the bill dubbed, now it's dubbed, don't say gay by critics actually says. And I, I mean, I could, I'm on page three and here's the BBC. Florida lawmakers passed don't say gay bill. Uh, U.S. News judge tosses a challenge to Florida's don't say gay bill. And by the way, every time I say don't say gay, there are quote marks. And so to Samuel's point, this was something that every single one of them uh, decided to run. Here's here's Esquire. I'm worried this is going to kill kids. Um, So at least to their credit, they didn't use that. (laughs) So um, to kind of Samuel's credit, this wasn't this wasn't an exaggeration. They all basically picked up what, you know, progressives had labeled this bill. They did it willingly and they did it without even thinking about it. And when challenged specifically by me. An actual journalist said, hey, it's good marketing. Yeah, and that, that was literally everywhere. I mean, that was all we talked about for like a month, I feel like. I, I was just thinking back on this past year, and I was like, my God, did all this shit happen? Like, I was thinking about the, I think the Kentonji, uh Brown-Jackson hearings were this year, too. So, or this they past were. year where we were talking about, uh, you know, what is a woman? So I'm like, oh, my God. And then the Ukraine war and all this shit. Um, but the last one I just want to bring up, and this one is just the media playing word games. And, well, when I say media take, playing word games, they're taking their cues from the White House. And, again, just running with their narrative was the month where there was, quote, zero inflation, where Biden went out and said inflation's over. You know, there was zero percent inflation this month. And they all claimed it as this huge victory because the inflation year over year hadn't, like, raised but it was still up or, you know, I'm not like a, you know, an expert on inflation, but it was not a good report. 
but it was better. But because like the inflation month over month or year over year, whatever it was, didn't raise, even though it was still astronomically high at like 8%. He said that there was zero inflation. The entire media ran with it as being zero inflation. And I even remember like Matt Iglesias going out and being like, well, why wouldn't he say 0% inflation? And it just, the entire media narrative and White House narrative about inflation and um, you're, yeah, you're forget, you're, and you're, all you're, that you're, stuff should be number one for me. You're, you're forgetting about redefining a recession. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> That's another good one where uh, they explain that, well, is it two months of negative GDP growth is a recession. And they literally all redefined it in real time. Even someone like John Harwood, who defined it as that earlier on his Twitter thread and did or on his Twitter feedback a couple of years ago and didn't feel the need to explain suddenly what had changed. John Harwood is another one who thankfully is currently unemployed out of CNN. Um, but that was another one where they all got the memo. And yes, it was a fucking memo or it was a slack order or it was a journalist direction. And they all just ran with it. Uh, because why? Because we were headed towards an election that they saw. Oh, geez. That reminded me, the one that I missed, uh, I knew I was missing one in my intro, was Dasha Burns' John Fetterman coverage with uh, Kara Swisher. That, to me, was the other big one. And it was also the Fetterman coverage in general this year was pretty atrocious, which we saw today as he was getting sworn in and he was staring at pretty lights or some shit. And his family just, like, goes in there and poses, and then they all just kind of leave him. And he just kind of lumbers behind them like the family dog. Um, but that was the other one that I missed, which I thought was a pretty huge deal that, you know, six months into a Senate race, he finally gives a live action interview, uh, to an NBC reporter that they thought was just their pal. And she goes on Twitter and is like, I don't think he can understand me. And you saw the full kind of force and fury of the journalist cool kids table led by Kara Swisher. Then uh, Molly John Fast jumped in there. And, of course, the hypochondriac at the Washington Post. And you saw them all kind of just the fangs come out because you realize these people aren't journalists. They are activists working for a political party, either being paid for or not. And that really revealed how that was a warning shot to other reporters, similar to what we saw in the 2020 election, that don't you dare, don't you dare cover this accurately and honestly and cost us a Senate seat because if had that have happened, Dasha Burns would be hiding out somewhere in Antarctica right now. That was the other one in my intro that I wanted to touch on. But uh, going back to your point and going back to the one we talked about, the uh, redefining of recession in real time was something where if you didn't have a Twitter account, you you were missing a joy. Yeah, just the, I, I mean, it was a horrible year from start to finish just in terms of the media. I mean, what what a big surprise there but their redefinition of terms i know we talk about that all the time with gender sex all that bullshit but like when you get into these economic terms where it can be confusing for your average person you know not everyone's studying gdp and whatever so they're it's really quite you know malicious what they're doing you know redefining terms like inflation and recession and all that stuff and it's just it's meant to confuse you and again i'm not gonna say that they got away with it necessarily because i don't really think that they did but it's just and they're taking you know talking points from the white house um so i'll hop off the last one i just want to quickly mention is just the border 
that they were that the entire media refuses to talk about the border. Now they're doing the Martha Raddatz. It's actually Republicans' fault that the border is open, uh, even though it's not open because Biden's never said it's open. So clearly it's not open. Yeah. But then a- Ron DeSantis sends a couple migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Then it's the biggest story. And then it immediately drops right back off where they're only interested in talking about it when they think that they can hurt their opponents. So I'll hop off. But that's another one where it just makes you want to tear your hair out. Yeah, that's a fun rhetorical trick that they're trying. And you saw that now. I mean, there's a current phenomenon and it's open for debate. Does does this White House follow what the media is saying or does the media jump in line with what the White House is doing? And I think it depends on issue to issue. But on the on the border, this is one that we saw Martha Raddatz say to Greg Abbott, the Biden administration is saying it's closed. You're the one saying it's open. And that's that's open an invitation for smugglers. And now you've seen Kareem Jean-Pierre pick up that language that says when you come out and say the border is open, smugglers hear that and bring more people. And that's one where you almost have to just sit back and admire the brazenness of that, knowing that this is not something any Republican president could get away with on anything ever. So they're literally changing kind of the meaning of the words open and closed to go after Republican governors. And then you're right. When migrants are dro- when 25 migrants are dropped out outside of Kamala Harris's house, it's human trafficking and, and human atrocity. And then you would say, well, if the border's closed, how did they get there? And that's when the story goes away. So, Samuel, thanks. Those are all uh, perfect, good topics. Julia, welcome back. What's yours? Or feel free to elaborate on any. any Hey, Stephen. Happy New Year. Um, So you actually already mentioned what I was going to bring up, which was the redefinition of recession over the summer. I mean, I was a high school senior in AP economics in 2007. So I remember very, very vividly, you know, learning about the business cycle, you know, and our teachers saying, well, technically, we're not in a recession yet, because that's, you know, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. But we all knew, you know, where it was going. And I just... It's just so funny how, you know, with any, if there was any Republican in power, you know, they would be screaming from the rooftops about how we were in this terrible recession. But, you know, if you Google, you know, any, like, if you just Google, you know, are we in a recession 2022, you know, it'll bring up all of the left-wing media you know, pages, and it'll all say, are we in a recession? Well, it's more complicated than you think, you know, <laughs> just they, you know, like your theme of, you know, them using language and redefining words is, I just really think the overall theme of the year, whether it's, you know, gender, or the economy, or, you know, any, any, time the left is confronted with like incontrovertible evidence for something they don't you know want highlighted they just change the whole definitions of the word and now they can do it instantly you know with online dictionaries so so um, a funny a funny one of this that i forgot was uh politico's Ben White, Morning Morning Money Ben, political chief economic correspondent, who had said previously that a recession is two quarters. And uh, he was called out about this by me and several others. But David L. Bonson, 
said, I don't understand why a reporter would bother to say a recession is not two quarters of contraction when they've said the opposite in the past in print. They had to know this would be thrown back in their face. Tucker is hammering uh, Ben White on this, and that's Monday Morning Ben. Here was Ben White's explanation. Yeah, I did a bad tweet a while ago. Now, mind you, it wasn't a tweet. It was an actual political story that he wrote. He said, I did a bad tweet a while ago referring to two negative quarters in a row as recession. Should have known better at the time, but it had been a while since I'd studied recession criteria, and that's not it. Nothing to do with giving Biden any kind of break. It's just accurate this time. <laughs> <laughs> and you did, again, you just, you have to just, yeah, your head just falls off of your shoulders, uh, and you just kind of have to marvel at the uh, testicular fortitude to be able to do that in public and then go to your job every day and think that you're an honest broker. And again, Harwood was one who was even funnier, who just flat out said it. He said that, you know, it's a quarter, you know, it's pretty common knowledge that a recession is defined as two negative quarters of GDP. And this is something going back to the 60s and 70s. And then, of course, you had the, the cherry on top of Paul Krugman in the New York Times basically jump in and say, oh, yeah, it's yeah, I mean, it's not surprising cons- considering, you know, what Sam was talking about with inflation and how they've treated that. You know, first it was, oh, no, it's there's no inflation. And then it's, okay, yes, but it's just marginal. And then, okay, yeah, there's inflation, but it's actually a good thing. <laughs> you know, it's just constantly yeah, it, it follows. It the- follows the pattern. This isn't happening uh, if you think it's happening, you're conspiracy theorists. Okay, it is happening, but here's why it's not as bad as you thought. And then, oh, this is happening, and it's a good thing now. And that's usually the pattern uh, that all of those, it's just the basic equation. Of- yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was the um, the Paul Pelosi story, which I don't know how that ended up with the guy um, if he was charged or not, but so um, David David DePapazin, uh he's currently on trial. He pleaded not guilty to the charges. Um, something that's funny to me is they did play the body cam footage in court that shows supposedly graininess because it was dark of DePap hitting Pelosi. But if you recall, an NBC reporter was suspended over stating that it was Paul Pelosi who just calmly opened the door. And in any reporting, I I looked into this, uh, every piece of reporting that came out of the fact that this video was shown in court does not mention who opened the door. Now, here's the thing. This is not the this is not the biggest detail in the world, except NBC suspended a reporter over this. And of course, the problem with the Paul Pelosi story is there's so much that is still unreported. How did DePap, who's a transient, get to the house? Um, did he drive? Was he dropped off? What, what's going on? And when, when you ask questions like this, you're, tr- you're suddenly labeled a conspiracy theorist because they knew each other. Or, and it's none of that. It's we're trying to figure this out. Why, why does the Speaker of the House's home in San Francisco not have a security system? She's third in line to the presidency. These are basic questions that have nothing to do with conspiracy. And then, of course, if you recall, because the reporting was so bad early on that raised a lot of these questions, because you're pointing out how bad the reporting is, you're then labeled the conspiracist. And it's like, no, we're not a conspiracist. You're the one reporting bogus information or information that is later disputed, either in court records by the police officials or 
what people are saying, uh, supposed sources of the media. So the media reports erroneous information, they get information wrong, and then you're somehow to blame for pointing it out. And that's usually how it goes with political stuff, is uh, the political left does something, you notice it, and because you noticed it, you're pouncing or uh, you're seizing or it's the reaction. And that was the thing about the Paul Pelosi story was there was so much that didn't add up to this incident, um, what was going on. And you know what? No one's suggesting that uh, it's supposed to add up, that this guy isn't a cuckoo crazy guy uh, who, you know, was turned on to conspiracies or what have you. Um, but again, when when so much of the reporting is coming out that is wrong and then an NBC reporter is suspended because he said sources, my sources say that Paul Pelosi was the one who calmly opened the door and then only when the police entered, he walked back over to have hit him over the head with a hammer. And that leads to, that's going to lead to speculation. It's going to lead to speculation of the reporters. It's going to lead to speculation of the police officials. Uh, we, we haven't heard from the cops. And that's the other thing that uh, there's so many, there's so many just curious circumstances. Um, and some of them, it's okay to ask. It's okay to ask why the Speaker of the House didn't have a fucking security system armed or on. It's okay to ask why there's not an on-duty security guard at her home at all fucking times. Apparently, Pelosi is just as good at uh, security on, around her home as she is around the Capitol. Um, it's okay to ask, okay, who is this guy that was supposedly a far-leftist raging nudist who voted for, like, far-left candidates? Isn't it kind of weird that a state senator in San Francisco, Scott Wiener, knows who this guy is? Not friendly, but says he knows who he is in the community. Uh, isn't it weird that this incident went on for three or four hours? Paul Pelosi was apparently never tied up at all, never twist tied. Uh, he was allowed to contact the police without being assaulted and was only assaulted once the police came in through the door. These are weird circumstances. Raising that specter is not conspiratorial. It's not suggesting anything. But for journalists to kind of report all of this erroneous or information that is later retracted and then blame the people going, hey, this is weird. How come you're taking this back? And they do this without explanation. And then they suspend an NBC reporter uh, for a detail that we still don't know is true or not. That's a little fucking weird. And so, yeah, he's in court. He's being tried. He said he's not guilty. Um, and the latest that I found it was saying the attack is on body cam footage. But in every report, I can't figure it. There's nothing. There's nowhere in any journalist report that states the specifics of the body cam footage saying who opened the door, who let the police in, what was it like and what was going on. And so the idea that there is so much secrecy around what this is, you're going to get people asking questions. And that it, that's not the fault of the audience. That's the fault of shit. Yeah, I mean, if anybody, I don't care if you're on the left or the right, if you read that, you know, someone opened the door and then in the presence of the police, the guy hits him over the head, like, that just doesn't make any sense. And, you know, you shouldn't have to you know, defend yourself against accusations of being a conspiracy theorist for just asking basic questions like that. So I think you were like dead on to point out how that, you know, it's the bad reporting that causes, you know, conspiracy theories to actually form. So, and then last thing I just want to say, I thought the most amusing 
um, you know, media um, reaction this year was to the Martha's Vineyard story because sometimes, like, you just have to laugh at <laughs> at their reaction to things, and it's like you know, if they didn't report on it or pay attention to it, it wouldn't be a big deal, but they have to like come out and sing Kumbaya and say, you know, we love these people. And it it was just, it was was like transparent. It was funnier than satire. Yeah, it was, it was transparent. What was going on? It was like, Oh, we'd love to take these people in whatever. And then they're all on buses the very next morning. And for some reason, busing them to a military base was not human trafficking. Um, and so th- this that incident with, with, with Abbott and what DeSantis did, they knew what they were doing and they knew what the reaction was going to be. And it was exactly the one that basically I think that they wanted. And because it really does show it's, you know, hey, we, we love these people. We're sanctuary. And it's like, OK, here's more of them. We're, we can't handle them in El Paso, Texas, and here you go. And the second that they get 25 of them on their precious little island, uh, it's a national emergency that has to be dealt with. And so uh, people can call it a political stunt all they want. It was a very smart political stunt that showed the hypocrisy of not only Democratic politicians, but it shows the hypocrisy of the media and how it was covered sort of to like, you know, what they said earlier about, how we went from literal concentration camps on our border and congresswomen crying in white outfits to what's a border? I don't know. It's closed. I'm just saying. And it was one of those things that shows you. And now you have the another fun little hypocrisy in all of this is you have the governor of Colorado, who's a you know libertarian Democrat, uh, is is sending migrants to uh, New York City because they can't hold them in Colorado, basically. Um, and so now they're sending them to New York city and where is the human trafficking accusation? It's gone. You're not, you're not hearing peep about that. And so that's their problem with intellectual inconsistency, where if you want to call it human trafficking with Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis, fine, call it that it's not, but you can call it that. Now the governor of Colorado is doing it, who is someone you agree with. And for some reason it's not human trafficking. And so, yeah, it's, it's one of those, to me, perfect little political plays that satisfies everybody and makes all the right people. Well, I just got to say, I just paid my property taxes. And, you know, as a Florida resident, I am i don't know where exactly the funding comes from, but I'm happy to pay them if it funds, you know, DeSantis Airlines. So anyway, Happy New Year, and, Stephen. And the DeSantis Southern Army. So... That's also yes. where you're going to. Thanks, Julia. Have a good one. Good to hear from you again. We'll, uh, it looks like we're right on schedule. Favorite or worst, your favorite worst media story of the year or person, or feel free to elaborate on what we've. Oh, did I lose you? Nope, you're there. It just takes a second. I know they've updated the app because I yelled at them. So. Uh, so it's, it's, it's better. It feels less glitchier than it did last. All right. The only one I want to talk about is the LGBTQ nightclub shooting in Colorado that disappeared three days after the shooting. Yeah, it wasn't quite three days, but you remember you had Ben Collins going on NBC saying we are an inflection point in our country. That's a pretty serious statement. That seems like it's like whatever. And then, of course, the second that his attorneys come out and say, 
they used non-binary pronouns. That was the end of it to the point to where all of a sudden NBC with Collins as a contributor is stating they're just trolling. It's not this person isn't this. And then, of course, you had the guest on CNN who was a friend, was a trans woman, who was a friend of one of the people who was in that club. So I don't want to beat up on that person too much, but saying that, no, this looked like a man. This is not someone who is uh, non-binary. This clearly looked like a man. And I'm like, really? Is that the standard now? Is that what we're doing? And again, to zero irony awareness to anyone in the media or to our hosts, they all just kind of went along with it as opposed to go, um, that's not really how this works because they don't want to be fired, essentially. And so, yeah, just to kind of elaborate on what you're going into. But yeah, it disappeared the second that the shooter came out with non-binary pronouns because they surfed Encyclopedia Dramatica or something. And it's always funny to me when someone like Ben Collins tries to talk about 8chan or Encyclopedia Dramatica as someone who is not so much now, but basically came up on internet forums like that. It's essentially, and it's just like, buddy, you have no idea what is actually like what, what these platforms are about. Like they're steeped in so many levels of deep irony and internet speak that you think because you took a class in journalism and you wrote for slate that you suddenly just got thrown into that, uh, arena that somehow you know everything about it and uh, that's why it's humorous to someone like me but yeah the second that the shooter came out and said I'm they them I'm confused I'm non-binary that was the end of it they wrote two stories saying that's not true Alejandro Caballo was one of the sources on that and it's kind of like how is this not a hate crime we're supposed to abide by even mass shooters pronouns which is another fun development this year that we saw um that even if you're like a mass shooter with non-binary pronouns, you must respect them in print. And it's so we'll see how long that trend lasts. But go ahead. I just I wanted to set that up. There wasn't quite like three days, but we haven't heard much about it since that angle. And the last thing that they wrote on it was, no, it's not true. That person isn't non-binary. And uh, I, I fail to understand how that. Well, he killed five people. Well, they killed five people and wounded 19 people who. Um, were all wounded with what the police said were gunshot wounds. Ben Collins cried on TV. So did the chick from the New York Times. And then, yeah, I mean, maybe it was five days. Then Ben Collins went off Twitter for two days, just disappeared. And the last articles even written about it were from December 8th and just radio silence and then nothing. And they just it's just gone. And then they dead named him, didn't get just banned from Twitter like I did. And dead named him on uh, CNN, like you said. And yeah, it's gone. It's over. I mean, five people killed, 19 people wounded. An inflection, um, an inflection the... point in our country. Yeah. Not, I mean, not, not yeah. like January 6th. This was an inflection point. This was a point where Ben Collins has to go on TV and say, are you more worried about uh, LGBTQ deaths and also pins it on libs of TikTok and online speech because that's all they know. And that's why I throw Yoel Roth and Twitter into this because that is their goal is to basically say we, we're not going to have a debate about uh, gender theory on Twitter. We're not going to have a debate on non-binary gender theory on Twitter because if you dare do that, your account is gone. And for all of the fuck-ups that Elon Musk has done since he bought that app, this was one of the most important reasons about why it's imperative that that app 
changed hands because you did have all of the you had journalists who are corporate journalists working for NBC and and multi-million dollar media conglomerates with all of the power uh, behind Twitter who could just dial up Twitter and say you have hate speech happening here. Oh, shit. OK, thanks. Thanks, Ben. And then get an account banned for that. And now now we're having a very open, robust debate over these issues. And uh, it's not always uh, sane. It's not always uh, polite. Um, but the fact that now we're at least having it and one side is allowed to speak, you can kind of, again, see the panic setting in, especially as it pertains to disinformation reporters, that it's not just what you say anymore, that you can't just come out and start banning people over because you feel unsafe or a certain thing. And that, of course, is the language that they always use, that these bills are going to make us unsafe. Allowing speech to question uh, gender theory is going to make people unsafe. Uh, I wrote about this with Rachel Levine just this past week at Spectator, where Rachel Levine spoke in May at a conference that said, we need to get disinformation under control on these platforms because it's going to make trans lives and trans minors unsafe. And there's misinformation happening. And I simply asked, Rachel Levine needs to explain what misinformation is being spread about hormone therapy, uh, surgeries for minors. Um, I, I'd like them, I'd like Rachel Levine to explain that. I'm not taking a position on it. I want them to explain where the misinformation is uh, because it doesn't seem like uh, information surrounding top surgeries and hormone therapies seems to be all of that off. And I'm not talking about lives of TikTok. I'm talking about people who have studied this and are steeped in it, like Katie Herzog or Jesse Singal and others. And those are people who very well probably, especially with the Q shooter, uh, probably would be all be kicked off uh, the Twitter platform now. So regardless of if it's a private company or not, as we learned, it's not really a private company when the head of the House Ways and Means Committee, Adam Schiff, is telling Twitter to ban certain accounts. Yep, totally agree. I Just one last thing, the people of um, Colorado, the community, um, in Colorado Springs, nobody there has had their voice heard because nobody goes and interviews them, nobody talks to them, nobody wants to ask any questions, there was no cameras at anybody's house. I mean, nobody asked a word of anybody in that community what they thought of that guy. I mean, he just disappeared, it's gone. And I mean, so, I mean, they never looked into it, Ben went and cried on TV, yep. never investigated, not a word from the community, nobody. The one um, the one person who went to that community and, and spoke to neighbors and stuff was Michael Schellenberger, and he was attacked by Ben Collins on Twitter. You're right, I forgot. And it's NBC, it's not, one. it's NBC, it's not like they're penny pinching. You can fly a reporter or two down to that community to talk to people, and you notice they don't. So I forgot about Schellenberger, you're right, that's it. Well, Stephen, happy new year, thank you, and uh, I will talk to you later. J Josh, good to hear from you as always. Thanks, buddy. And we'll wrap it up. Make best, best worst media of the year severe. Wrap it up for us. Bring us home. Make it. Let's give him a second here. We might be getting out of here early. Is he gone? I'm going to give him until I'm going to give him until 9 p.m. <laughs> uh, these were all good ones tonight. Uh, I, I'm. These were all really good ones.
it's been a long year. They're only going to get worse or as it comes to my business better. So it's this year and we're headed into the election. So that's going to be fun. Hello, Steven. Just made it. You just made it, my man. Hey, give me, give me your, your worst media, your best case. Um, the best media of the year is your analysis of the media. No, I mean, I don't, no, don't compliment me. Don't get my head in that direction. Give me your, give me your best, worst media of the year. Well, I actually dialed you by accident, but I'm a loyal listener and, uh, I was not prepped with a, uh, with a specific example. I loved the, uh, many of the prior comments made by our colleagues. Severe, what do you think of the new logo and branding? Should I stick with it? Um, I'm with any lo- logo you produce, pretty much. Um, <laughs> I'm asking you to have an opinion, but that's okay. So, uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I did see it. Uh, I think you're going to establish a media empire. No, I have no interest in that. I would have become- done that. I would have done that by now. I'm. I'm really not interested in doing that. There's a lot of people that are interested in doing that. The thing with establishing media empires is I don't get to do things like this. I don't get to then talk to people and I don't get to hear other opinions and I don't get to give people a chance to talk to me. And so, which I think is the most important thing for anyone in media um, or especially media criticism or anything, which is to just, just to hear people out and get different perspectives and especially people who aren't, particularly in this arena. So I, I have no desire for that. Sorry to let you down. Well, you know, I never miss a podcast and I hear 90, 90% of the call-ins and I, I can tell you're quite sincere about wanting to hear from the people on call-in and really you get, there's some really knowledgeable and articulate people that call in and add value. So uh, keep up the good work, even at a higher Price on <laughs> You're not supposed to say that part yet. Yeah, no, I'm. I'm oh, we're oh. probably going to be moving over to Substack here within a month. I'm guessing probably by February first. So we're almost there. Um, I'm, I'm just I'm short a few subbers to go over. So anyone listening who isn't familiar with the podcast, I am moving over to Substack. Um, you can just search uh, Miller versus Media, and you can just park your email address there for now. Uh, there's I'm not charging anything for now while I get set up. And uh, I'm working with Substack to get me set up over there. So I, I'm now aiming. I was aiming for January 1st. I'm now aiming for February 1st. And, um, yeah, I'm going to be charging a little bit more, but I'm also going to be offering more, like new logos. So um, it, it will be a good thing to sign up over there. Stephen, this is not an AMA, but uh, how do we know whether you're deliberately mispronouncing a word or you need correction, a sub or correction? You don't. Um, so one of the things about like mispronunciation that if you talk, you talk to people about it's people who are readers, people who are very well read, you know, see words and it's also a brain function and it's probably also a bit of a handicap. Um, but it's something on my podcast and I just decided to run with, so you don't anymore. Well, I just, you, you never, you never give away, you know. Uh, things that people make fun of you for, uh, you just kind of lean into them and run with them. So now it's just a pure guessing game. Yeah, I can understand. You don't want to take us behind the curtain. I just want to sit, pronounce one word, though, that I don't know has ever been pronounced this way. 
on your uh, media, and that would be Mark Levin. <laughs> I don't know if I can do that. I fair enough. I, I just wanted to throw that's that. A into t- the mix. That's a pretty tall request. I, I'm not even requesting it. I'm just. Uh, I just wanted to break through the iron curtain. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you had your chance, and now I have to boot you. Thanks, Stephen. Good, good night. Have a good night, Severe. Uh, I think it's Severe Conservative, who's uh, who's obviously one of my podcast subbers. So yeah, no, the the mispronunciation thing is now a. It's other than when it's names. Um, it's now just something I, I have decided to, um, I am not a, I am not a so-called professional at this by any means, as you can kind of tell, nor do I have any desire to become one. Uh, these were all good tonight, kids. Uh, it's episode 79, the worst to be in 2022. I think we covered them all. I think we made a top 10 list. Um, these were all really good reminders. Obviously, Felicia Sumnaz was a good reminder. Um, rede- redefining terms to suit the Biden administration's agenda was also a good one. Um, and that's only going to get better because we're about to hit a double dip recession. So it's going to be fun to watch them rede- you know, redefine that one. So um, also Peter Thiel. <laughs> yeah, you're just going to have to roll with it now. Uh, there's some that I miss and there's some that I don't. And so now it's uh, now it's just a pure game to me. Um, again, it's episode 79, the worst of media in 2022. I'm Stephen L. Miller. I will be back on Patreon tomorrow. Please leave comments and questions over there. Um, like I said, I, I rolled out a, a new logo and some kind of new branding. And um, it's primarily, like I said, for Substack, uh, moving over there to a kind of more traditional writing platform. And uh, so... We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it grows on me. Um, but hopefully you guys like it. It's kind of, you know, retro 70s minimalism, uh, all of that stupid art criticism stuff. So feel free to give me feedback on that. Um, have a good night. I'll be back here tomorrow. I'll be back on Patreon tomorrow, maybe back here tomorrow night, seeing how uh, the time rolls or what news there is with the uh, the flaming dumpster fire that is the GOP House Caucus. But we'll see. Uh, thanks again to my callers, all good stuff tonight, all good content. Thanks again to my listeners. You guys, uh, you guys put me for the year that I've done this, kept me up towards the top two, three, top five shows on Colin, uh, which is still an app that's going strong. I know it competes with Twitter spaces. I, I, I happen to believe this is a better format. Don't tell Elon Musk. Um, but once again, uh, thanks again, everyone for listening. And, uh, again, I'll see you on Patreon tomorrow.